This is a project that has two um, major sites, uh, Qatar and the UK. The research has incorporated 18 months ethnographic fieldwork in Qatar um, and ongoing fieldwork in the UK. I'm actually just coming to the end of the fieldwork in the UK. And that's, it's been ongoing for the same sort of time, about 18 months. Um, the main method is semi-structured interviews, but we've been combining this with other forms of data collection. So mainly, it's semi-structured interviews with primary participants. We have 100 primary participants, 20 pregnant Qatari women in Qatar, 40 um, Qatari women in Qatar who've recently miscarried, and 40 British women um, here in the UK who've recently miscarried. You may know that it's slightly imbalanced um, in that we're, looking at we're following 20 women in Qatar through their pregnancies, but not doing that in the UK. The reason for that is because there's quite a lot of sci social science literature on pregnancy, medicalization of the pregnant body, um, those sorts of things in the UK, but we just didn't know very much about um, women's experience of pregnancy, how pregnant bodies are managed, those sorts of things. So the project is very focused on pregnancy loss, but I thought that in order to understand what actually is lost, it was important to also have some idea about pregnancy first. So that's why we've done that in Qatar. So we're speaking to these people um, one, uh, one or a number of times. Basically, the pregnant women, we've, we met with them a number of times through their pregnancies. Um, we also interviewed secondary, secondary participants wherever possible. Husbands, we really want to talk to husbands. It's been successful in the UK. In Qatar, it's been really, really difficult, and we can talk about why that is. But we have we worked really hard, and we managed to get a handful of husbands who are willing to talk to us about their experience of their um, wives um, having miscarriages. But we also spoke to other family members, so mainly sisters, mothers, cousins, mother, mothers-in-law. But we also spoke to clinicians, health professionals, traditional healers, religious leaders. So really anywhere that miscarriage was being discussed or managed or talked about, we sort of traveled through um, and looked at it there as well. Um, we're also really interested, I was interested in the material culture of pregnancy, motherhood and loss. Part of that was because I found it interesting here that um, women, I saw that women were doing things like buying objects or keeping objects or making things to remember um, pregnancy loss, but also pregnancy and mother and becoming a mother in childhood is one of those points where there's a lot of consumption around them. So I thought it was important to, to look at that. And definitely in Qatar, there's a lot that, to do with buying things and preparing for, for um, a pregnancy and a baby. Um, so as I said, we've been doing semi-structured interviews, but also using other forms of data collection. So we've been doing things like attending clinical sessions, sonogram sessions, going to traditional healers with women, uh, masada, which are massage sessions, and shopping with women as they prepare for birth. I should say that although the project is in two different sites, I'm talking primarily about the Qatar material today. I'm happy to talk about the UK material, but I just thought it might be more interesting to talk about um, Qatar. Um, so the themes explored have included theories of miscarriage causation, cultural significance of reproduction, the development of fetal personhood, cultural practices, for example, burials around the fetus, and of course the impact of religion. All of these forces will impact the way a woman might experience the loss of a baby. So the pro focus on pregnancy and loss also provides an important lens through which we can better understand broader themes in Qatari culture. So there's not very much ethnographic material about Qatar, so I'm sort of using this as a lens to also talk about um, much more broader themes in Qatar. So you can hear that I'm seeing, saying we, that's because I'm the LPI in this project, but I also work with people mainly in, in Qatar. So these are clinicians who are working in the main hospital through, out of which I'm recruiting. 
Danny Miller, I don't know if any of you are familiar with him, um, my colleague at UCL, I brought him in on this project because he's an expert on material culture and I am not. Um, so I thought that he could come out and just help me sort of understand um, more about the material culture around loss, but also he's written quite a lot about motherhood and parenthood. And then I have two research assistants. Well, I used to have two research assistants. Uh, Mona has gone on to do a PhD now, and but Nadia is still with me. So they're based in Qatar. And, oh, and I should say, well, the project is funded by the Qatar National Research Fund, so it's part of the Qatar Foundation. Okay, so second uh, slide, just about background. This, just very quickly, will give you some important points about um, Qatari marriage practices and fertility. So marriages are arranged usually by mothers who cal whose calculation is carefully intended to prevent conflict within and between lineages. As in most of the Arab world, consanguineous unions remain, a most, remain the most popular form of marriage um, in Qatar. So 54% of marriages are within the family and 35% of those are with first cousins. And interestingly, this is one of the only um, uh, countries where it's on the increase. So despite the fact that there's quite a lot of um, public health messages about potential risks, genetic risks of consanguineous unions, it's increasing, it's become more popular. Um, Islam is a pronatalist religion and procreation is considered to be one of the most important pillars of society. Human reproduction and the need to preserve one's social group are paramount. Uh, Qataris are devout Sunni Muslims and um, religion is in every aspect of social life. The fertility rate remains high amongst Qatari women, with it reaching four live births per each woman in 2007, and the average number of children is five. The average age at first marriage is, uh, for women is increasing, and there's a lot of concern about that, but right now the average is 23 years um, at marriage. All of this in part is due to a community desire to preserve high levels of fertility and reproduction rates. The total fertility rate of Qatari women is one of the highest in the Arab Gulf states, and it's also very much state-encouraged, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. Important also to note that polygamy is allowed in the country, although it's on the decrease, um, and the country also has one of the highest divorce rates in the world. The reason I put those in, in terms of the just contextualizing what I'm talking about is that not producing children is one of the reasons why a man might take a second wife or why a woman might um, be divorced. And divorce and polygamy put women in a potentially vulnerable social position as well. Um, motherhood holds a particularly important status in Islam. In numerous places in the Quran, emphasis is put on the great struggles a mother goes through for her child and the, and the respect that she should be afforded. The Quran emphasizes the great struggles the mother goes through for her child, and this highlights the need for one to reciprocate um, a parent's, in particular a mother's, sacrifice for one. The Prophet Muhammad gives more rights to the mother above all others. The burden and responsibility is placed upon a woman and a mother as well as the difficulty she's, uh, she is to endure is seen to be of paramount importance for the need to respect her. So, and this is a quote from the Quran. This is what Allah says in the Quran. And we have enjoined upon man to be dutiful and good to his parents. His mother born, bore him in weakness upon weakness and hardship upon hardship. And his weaning is, to, is in two years. Show gratitude and thanks to me and to your parents. So I've put this on here just to sort of emphasize that motherhood is um, incredibly important to Qatari society and also um, in Islam more generally. And this also has to do with the reproduction of, of traditions and the reproduction of, of culture in a quite literal sense. But there's also an expectation that motherhood involves struggle and suffering. 
Pressure is placed on women to produce children very soon after marriage. So as Nora, one of my participants, said, it's not good to get married and not have kids. There will be too many stories about you. The first thing your husband's family will talk about you is your wife pregnant. God did not give you kids yet. The mother-in-law is not easy, basically. If her son completed two years and didn't have children, she will insist on him to marry again. I'm telling you, in, you, I'm telling you pregnancy at the first year of marriage is very important. And this is a picture, this, you'll see this all around Doha, um, lights are put up when um, a wedding has happened. Um, so you can see that, first of all, that um, the extended family gets involved, the mother-in-law in particular, but there's a lot of pressure um, to try and have a baby very soon um, after, after marriage. The ability to produce children is so central um, that it's very important to show that you can get pregnant almost immediately after, after you, uh, the wedding. And I've actually heard this referred to as a test baby. Sometimes people say they, they had a test baby and this is, a this is to prove your fertility, to prove that you can produce children. And that may mean that if, it, if you're able to produce a child very soon after marriage, you might be able to sort of, it takes the pressure off a little bit to focus on studies or work. Um, and I think one thing to point out as well for people who aren't familiar with this, this part of the world is the way that marriage, motherhood, and um, womanhood are entirely entwined. So for example, a woman will live with her, with her families and she'll be very, she won't be very independent, she'll be very much sort of taken care of um, and looked after mainly by her father but also her brothers. When she gets married that allows her sort of access to a wider social life. Um, it also means that she can have sex for the first time. Um, she can be intimate with, with her husband. And this is completely not allowed before, before marriage. So a husband and a wife will have potentially no interaction, but if so, very little interaction before they're married. So things change very radically for women when they get married. But at the same time, it's completely in time with producing children. So you start having sex, you immediately try and um, have a baby at the same time. Um, so this um, one of our participants who's married to her cousin has five children and two miscarriages. She said, every woman wants to be a mother and have kids. We said, what if there are problems? What if she's infertile? I don't know, but bad luck um, sometimes because she can't have kids and she's not useful. They will talk from the first month after marriage. They will start asking after the first, first month questions start. And Miriam, 26-year-old housewife married to her first cousin, um, who has two children and is one of our pregnant participants, said, yes, it's important for a woman to be a mother. We said, how many children would you like to have? Four, this is my plan. Four kids, two boys, two girls. How many children would your husband like to have? 10 kids. He always gets me, he always tells me in five years you have to get me 10 kids. It's, and then we said, so who, what's gonna happen? Who's, you know, how many kids you're gonna have? And she'll say, it's up to him. All Qatari men are like this. They like to have so many kids. He is like this, and if I argue with him, he will raise the number to 12 in five years. And she, was, she laughed. But this is a very common narrative amongst our participants. We were often told that men wanted big families. They'd say things like, he won't limit, he doesn't want me to limit. Um, but their wives said that they wished for smaller families of about four to six children. When we asked, ultimately we were told that decisions um, on family size rest with men, and to some extent, the extended family. So his mainly his family. Um, but having said this, this doesn't mean there isn't negotiation. A lot of the women would say, they would talk about how they could negotiate with their husband, or for example, um, 
you know, there was room for move, sort of maneuver. Women were ha- taking birth control, sometimes telling their husbands, sometimes not telling their husbands. Um, but generally, this is what you hear um, again and again. Um, the desire for large families and an emphasis on childbearing is supported and endorsed by the state. Qatar's total population is 2.2 million, with Qataris compromising only 10% of this number. So you can see that they're, they're a minority in their own country. The rest of the population is made up by migrant workers from all over the world. So while the overall population has rapidly grown since the late 20th century, the Qatari population has increased only at a marginal rate. Furthermore, marriage rates have declined in recent years, divorce rates have risen, and Qatari women are delaying the birth of their first child and also having fewer children overall. Concerned about these trends and the considerable demographic imbalance, Qatar has been taking taking measures to ensure, and these are quotes um, coming from the Qatar National Development Strategy, which was um, came out in 2011. So they said they're... They're taking measures to ensure the continuity of cohesive families and large households, um, which they see as crucial to the national vision. Furthermore, mothers are seen as central to the state vision. And I'm quoting again, the family is the basis of Qatari society, the foundation for all aspects of Qatar's social structure. Women are central to this positive, evolving nature of the Qatari family. So you can see this emphasis on large households, large families. Large families, high fertility rates, and the reproduction of society can also be seen as directly encouraged and supported through things like state-funded IVF and other um, assisted reproductive technologies. So Qatar is interested in increasing its numbers and creating a robust and independent state, and what they, they constantly talk about being a modern and cosmopolitan state. But at the same time, the focus is on retaining a strong sense of cultural heritage and adherence to traditional customs. And women are very much seen as central to this. Um, And this is the sort of dialogue that you get from the state um, and the government. So there's a cultural expectation that women will become pregnant and will do so soon after marriage, and that she will continue to produce children and remain focused on fulfilling her role as a mother. In Qatar, as in other Muslim societies, a woman's status, her self-esteem, and her social role role remains entwined with her ability to produce and mother children. (coughs) However, this is now having to be managed um, with increasing expectations and also ambitions around education, participation, social, political, and economic life. So women increasingly are being expected to, to be highly educated, to work, to be part of the sort of social and political life of the country. And yet they're supposed to be having large families as well. So some of the women will say, I, I only want four children because I can't do everything. And this is, has been quite a rapid change. Things have changed quite um, dramatically over the past decade. Um, okay, so the inability to produce um, children leaves women in a particularly vulnerable position. So this is Nadia, who... Um, Nadia was quite interested. She's 29. She's university educated. She's the second wife of her first cousin, um, the first marriage had no children either. Um, and she has no children after two miscarriages. Nadia was quite interesting because she was the participant that she was incredibly upset. A lot of the women that in Qatar that I spoke to, they were sad, and I'll talk a little bit more about it. But she was, she was very um, upset with um, what had happened to her. She'd had two um, miscarriages after two rounds of IVF. What, one loss was at five weeks, one at ten weeks. And she said, they always stay, say, why is he staying with her? She is not getting babies. He should marry another one and have kids. 
And I have a feeling this might be my old presentation, but anyway. Um, so we asked uh, Noor, who was 25 years old, high school educated, married to her 22-year-old second cousin. She has no, no children after three pregnancies, so she had two miscarriages and one child died soon after birth. We asked her if, if she thought that, you know, what does society th think of, how do they treat women um, who have problems um, with miscarriage? She said, in our society, it's not usual that a married woman didn't get pregnant. One or two months after the wedding, they start asking, why is she not pregnant yet? Why didn't she seek treatment? They're sure that there's something wrong with her if she didn't get pregnant immediately, and she should find out what the problem is. People always blame her and accuse her for what happened. As Noor suggests, we found that women are largely blamed for reproductive problems and failures, but also you can see here that they should seek treatment. There's pressure to seek treatment, to get help. They're responsible for that. Um, and, that and also that there's an idea that it's something to be overcome, that there's some way that you, if you take action and you are proactive, you will be able to get passes, but you have to show that you, you want to get passes and have children. Um, Infertility and repeated loss, so recurrent miscarriage, so not being able to produce a, children, a child is a form of severe disruption. But the question is, is a miscarriage? So is a miscarriage where it's one or a one-off or, or two, is that, is that such a problem? And when I first started the project, I expected to find that women were in a vulnerable position if they experienced the loss of um, a pregnancy. But what, what we found is something less clear-cut. Um, women experience... Generally in Qatar, women start their reproductive careers quite early, they finish quite late, they have a lot of sort of um, reproductive experiences. We're seeing that they have quite complicated uh, reproductive careers. So in that way, miscarriage is not seen as that unusual. Um, and this, however, differs from my work in the UK, where although the women that I'm, the British women that I'm interviewing um, are aware of the statistic, the one in four, that one in four pregnancies will end in miscarriage, they seem to, to take, feel that their miscarriage is malign, really sort of um, traumatic, that it's unusual, it's difficult. Um, in Qatar, miscarriage brings sadness and loss, but it's experienced against a backdrop of not getting pregnant, of infertility, which is seen as disruptive and incredibly threatening to one's social standing and one's position. So the British women I meet often report that um, when they've told friends and family their news that they've experienced a miscarriage, Sometimes people will say, well, at least you got pregnant. And I know, Ginny, you mentioned this in your presentation. Um, and the, both Ginny and I found that women say that that's really unhelpful, that that's actually really upsetting. But in Qatar, it's actually a, an important and a positive realization that, and it allows women to move forward from the experience because, indeed, she, she has proven her fertility. She can get pregnant. She's not infertile. So recurrent miscarriage presents a problem as does infertility, but miscarriage itself creates less of a social problem. So for example, Karima, one of our participants, we asked her, um, is there a way to ease the pain of miscarriage? And actually the question meant more about, you know, can you take any, any medication or any um, herbs or anything? And she said to believe that at least she got pregnant. Karima later said to us that the young men at, at her work were very curious about her situation because she was taking sick leave and asked many of her friends if she was pregnant. Her friends told, told these sort of curious co-workers that she had been pregnant, but she had lost her miscarriage. And then Karima says, and I quote, they also asked me, did you get pregnant? 
And when I tell them that I lost my pregnancy, I feel their rejection, their reaction is better than if I didn't get pregnant at all. It's like they're, they are saying, at least you got pregnant. Fatima, another one of our participants, spoke to us about how she felt others viewed women who had a miscarriage. And she said, I'm quoting here, I think if she has kids, then no problem. They will say that she has kids and she can try again. But if she doesn't have children, then this is the issue. They will say, take treatment, and the relatives will interfere. Then they will say, go and go to a Matawang to read on you. Maybe this is because of magic. Maybe the housemaid is doing magic for you, and this happens a lot nowadays. Then maybe the mother-in-law will also interfere, and if the treatment doesn't work, she will tell him to go and marry another one after a while. Okay. So I just wanted to put... Um, Fatima's quotation there to give you a sort of introduction to um, a discussion of miscarriage causation. And I'm just very briefly going to talk about some of the things that come up as causing miscarriage, but just getting you to think about how this also involves rhetoric of blame and sort of ideas about um, whether or not a woman or other people are to blame for her miscarriage. So some of the things that are talked about um, genetic factors, consanguinity, fetal abnormalities, IVF pregnancy, age, those come up. They come up um, now and then, but the ones that come up again and again are the ones I've put in, in pink here, and they're the ones that I'll talk in a little bit more depth about. So one of the things that um, women will talk about are the, are the foods to avoid, and these are some of the foods that um, women are supposed to avoid when they're pregnant because it may cause miscarriage. A lot of these things are things that you might have at the very end of your pregnancy in order to um, help with labor or to cleanse your body after a pregnancy or after a miscarriage. And generally, they're, they're thought of as they're hot foods. So they're, that's, um, all of these things are things that are known as heat, um, heating the body. Um, okay, just going back to this slide. Um, one of the things that comes up again and again is um, carrying heavy objects. It's one of the first things people say, and quite often they'll say that the older generation, if someone has a miscarriage, they will always say, did she lift something heavy? Um, so Nora said, as an Arabic and GCC country, we always say that the woman miscarries because she lifted a heavy object. This is the most common theory. She carried something heavy or she overworked or she slept with her husband. We don't consider the medical or the biological reasons. We always say that it happened because of this. They asked me when I had the miscarriage, did you carry something? What did you take? Even though, even though if the woman doesn't work in her house. So... One of the things I just like to point out as well is how a lot of these things, so carrying heavy objects, exhaustion, overwork, stress, are also linked to issues around work. So there's a lot of ambivalence about whether women should continue working and about the pressures of women working. And I think I'm sort of I'm writing another paper right now about those sort of contradictory um, expectations on women and how it's kind of playing out in these rhetorics of blame. Women will often say that it's okay to work but you should take it easy. And it's not uncommon for women to constantly go into the hospital and get sick leave of two weeks. So they say they work, but, but they're actually constantly having sort of extended um, sick leave periods. Um, okay, and then the other thing that comes up again and again is the sort of the fetal environment. Um, so things like having exposure to x-rays before you knew you were pregnant, exposure to drugs, so taking a drug often before you know you're pregnant. But the thing that comes up again and again is emotional and psychological state. So if a, if a mother is pregnant and she is stressed or she has an upset or a shock like a death in the family 
if there's sadness or grief, that can cause a miscarriage, but that can also cause um, an illness or a disability or problems in the child's temperament if, if it is um, born. The word that comes up, and we heard so much again and again, is asbia. Um, and generally it means um, irritability or agitation. So the idea is if the mother is kind of stressed and anxious and agitated, then the baby will be stressed and anxious and agitated and won't settle too. So Sahar said, I think some women do miscarry because of their emotional feelings. I mean, if she's not stable and worried, she may miscarry the baby. I know my neighbor was pregnant and she was thinking about her son who's five years old and traveling to America for treatment. She was sitting and crying a lot and she miscarried the baby. So it was also the traveling, the coming and going, moving a lot, and maybe the plane also affected the, the pregnancy, but also age for sure. So she's sort of talking about all the different um, aspects of things that might cause a miscarriage, but the fact that being upset or being stressed is, is one of them. Okay, and then evil eye is something that came up again and again. Um, so evil eye, which is linked to jealousy or envy, is often cited as the cause of miscarriage and illness more generally. And I, I think one of the things I'd just like to point out is there's a kind of complex and subtle interaction between blame, women's behavior, women's relationships, and pregnancy loss. Women usually jealous of the fertility of other women were the main culprits of evil eye. Evil eye, also known as the look, is cast by women who may be jealous, envious, or simply wicked and who intentionally or unintentionally harm, harm by a glance. Belief in the evil eye is prevalent throughout the Middle East, but it can be a sensitive issue as it's, seen, it's often seen as old-fashioned or against Islam. And Qatar is very focused on being seen as a very modern, cosmopolitan um, nation, and thus traditional ideas about evil eye can be treated with some ambivalence. In light of this, the ease at which women speak about the evil eye is noteworthy. Evil eyes seem to be a particular concern around issues of reproduction, as jealousy over another person's sexual fertility or producing children, producing beautiful children, producing many children, seems to be the driving force behind evil eye. But I think this also reflects how central reproduction is in Qatari society and how important it is for a woman's role in society. So one of our participants said... Um, we say maybe she is possessed or um, it's the Korean gin. And those who are civilized would say maybe the cat disease, tasoplasmosis. If the gin is settled in the uterus, it will prevent pregnancy. Many people are possessed and this possession causes them to miscarry. So they seek help from a religious leader and from the Quran. Possession means gin con controlling the person either by magic or by evil eye. Sometimes the gin that possesses you is caused by evil eye. Okay. Um, and another, so Samia, who had four um, children, four boys, and a miscarriage, said, even the doctor told me that what happened was from God, but we do believe in the eye. We believe in destiny. Of course, we believe that exhaustion and strenuous work also play a role. Evil eye is real, and it's mentioned in the Quran, and absolutely it has an effect on pregnancy and everything, but I don't think that is what happened to me. I don't think that what happened to me is because of evil eye. At the end, it's all God's will. And if the woman has a high chance to miscarry, she should take rest and stay away from stress, particularly in work, either by reducing the number of working hours or by taking sick leave. Um, and this is very common. Um, so I put this, this um, quotation on here just to show that um, the kind of layers of causation, but ultimately miscarriage is caused by God's will. It's, it's um, due, to, due to God's will. 
So, for example, this, this is an it's quite an interesting um, interaction between one of our participants, her mother, and her husband. So Khadija said, we asked her if she thought that there was any kind of stigma around having a miscarriage. And she said, yes, there is social stigma. They say this woman always miscarries. For example, you may be sitting in a place with your friend and your friend points to a lady and says, this lady has no children because they always die. Or she always gets pregnant, but her babies die in her stomach like this. If she heard what they say, she would be disturbed because it's not her fault. And then the mother said, it, it's all God's will. How could she be guilty? If she carried something heavy, in this case, she's guilty. Or if she took a medication that may harm her and the baby, she is guilty. Or if she didn't follow the doctor's recommendations, she is guilty too. But if she did all that she could and followed the doctor's recommendations and took the medications, in this case, she is not guilty. And Khadija said, no, mom, it's only you who say this. But the people and the society's point of view is different because they don't know what you went through or what happened with you. So, of course, they will always blame the woman. And then her husband said, there's another kind of stigma. For example, if a woman always miscarries, men don't propose to her sisters because they think it may be inherited. So I think this is quite interesting because the idea is it's, it's all ultimately God's will. So how could she be, how could she be um, responsible for that? But then there's different kind of elements of potential blame. Um, and Khadija says, no one really knows what happened. So ultimately, it's very easy to blame a woman. Okay, so I should warn you, there's a picture of a, a miscarried uh, fetus that is coming up, but I thought I should put it up here. Um, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Miriam, um, who was actually one of our pregnant participants. Um, she had six children when we met her, and she was pregnant with her um, seventh child, who was a son, and he was born during our field work. But she had um, experienced pre two um, losses previously. So although she's one of our pregnant participants, her interviews were, she spoke all, quite a lot about a, her previous loss, which had happened at 18 weeks. And, and this discussion really dominated her, um, her interviews and also her thoughts about the next, the next pregnancy. And during the interview, so during the very, we met with her a number of times, but during the very first interview, she showed us a picture of the baby that she had lost. And she described his, his birth in a lot of detail. So that's the picture that she showed us, and she sent it to us. Um, and she sort of talked about um, what happened while she was looking at the picture, and she, re she really wanted to show us this picture of him. And she said that... So she described his birth in the hospital or um, the miscarriage and what had happened afterwards. In particular, she wanted to explain to us what happened to the baby. So... After the baby, after um, she had the baby, it was taken to the histopathology lab, which is what always happens to um, the miscarried fetuses. And then it was taken to the hospital mortuary where her husband went to pick it up. And he was handed um, a small wrapped box which contained the body of the, of the baby. And her husband said, so she was crying and he came to the hospital to get her after being at the, at, at the mortuary. And the husband said, is this what you're crying for? And held up the box and said, and um, Miriam said, he thought it was a piece of meat. So from there, they went to the graveyard and they, they drove in the car and they went to the graveyard and the mortuary, the mosque. And she explained, and I'm quoting from her, the sheikh there washed him and, okay, these are the, um, washed him and everything. He said, he is complete, and so you should name him. This is the sheikh. We called him Abdullah, and before he buried him, my husband saw him. 
He looked at him and started touching him and saying, Ya Allah, I don't believe it. A piece like this, fully formed, he's got fingers, eyes, lips, nose, lungs, backbone, the poor baby. In the car on the way home, she looked over and she noticed that her husband was crying. And so she said that they cried together. And then he opened his mobile phone and told her, I took a photo of him. You will see him and then delete it. You will delete the photo, promise me. And she said, send it to my phone so I can look at it. Um, so he sent it to her phone. And Miriam asked her husband to send the picture to her phone. She, um, she said, he, he again asked her to delete the photo and she said that she couldn't. How do you want me to delete this when it's something that's drawn on my heart? I mean, he's a human being. He was 18 weeks. He's a bird in heaven. Miriam then explained that she would often cry and she would often look at the picture. And she said that everyone around her was worried. And she said even the maid was worried and said, this is not good. You are Muslim. Haram. You have kids and God will give you more. And she said, but no one feels this is a spirit. It came out of me. It's not easy. Then I decided this period I will let go. The next month, inshallah, I will follow my ovulation and I want to get pregnant this time. I want God to reward me for the baby that I lost. So one of the things that I think is, Mariam talks about is this idea that you shouldn't dwell. It's seen as potentially dangerous. Mariam was one of the only women that had kind of was had pictures and was looking at things and was, was very upset and the people around her were, were concerned about her and felt that it was potentially harmful to her. And I think there's this, um, women may be sad, but they mustn't dwell on the loss. We heard again and again that one must move forward from the experience and not look backwards. I think this resonates with the religious, religious beliefs around God's plan. If a woman does express grief or sadness or become sort of locked in, in this, um, is she then seen as questioning God's plan for her? Her faith is expected to be irrepressible and resistant to wavering. And so Haya, for example, said, we believe in faith, but we feel sad once, twice, then what? What do you think sadness will do or how will it help? Nothing. Even if you feel sad, it won't return back anything. You will feel sad and your husband will get sad when he looks at you. And your family will also get sad, everyone around you. And then Halima, who was one of our um, participants' mums, said, I always encourage her because it's God's will. He is the one who gives and he's the one who takes back. So we should accept what Allah destined for us. If it happened, we should accept it with a pleased spirit. So I just wanted to speak about that, just showing how ultimately it's, it's God's will that um, a woman miscarries. And women, women speak about that quite a lot and say that it gives them comfort. There's a reason why this happened. It gives meaning to it. So for example, women might say, Maybe the baby, if the baby had been born, it would live till five and then be hit by a car and I'd be so grief stricken. Or maybe there'd be a problem with the baby or maybe the baby would be born and it wouldn't have been a very good person. So there's a real kind of an idea that this was part of God's plan. There's a reason for it. And ultimately it's, it's for your own good and your own benefit. So now I just want to move on and, and speak a, very quickly about categories um, and the categories that we find for these various things. Social, per personal, cultural, and religious and political forces all have an impact on the experience of loss, but we also must look at the way that these sorts of forces also give rise to the specific objects, i.e. a miscarriage, a fetus, a baby. Locke calls on, a, calls on us to contextualize and embed bodies in space and time thus destabilizing that which is assumed to be essentially universal, natural, and readily standardizable, and bringing to the fore inextricable entanglements among history, the social, political, and the material. 
So one of the ways I was thinking about this are what are the rituals around pregnancy loss in Qatar? Such a question also leads us to explore the implications of religious discourses on the beginning of life and the identity of the fetus as they influence the social and medical practices. So all fetuses and accompanying tissue are buried in Qatar. Fetuses of prior to four months gestation are treated as though they were a body part or a tissue of, of the woman. A number of participants refer to them as pieces of meat, such as um, Mariam's husband. These tissues are not covered or prayed over and are buried with other body parts in a, in a particular part of the graveyard. Um, and I, I went to the graveyard to watch the, a burial of a fetus of this age. Although we were told that all fetuses are brought into the mortuary and buried at the graveyard, some participants told us that for a fetus of less than four months gestation, it could be buried somewhere else, like in, in, the, um, in the backyard. In Qatar, it's illegal to give birth at home and not very unusual to miscarry at home. So it's highly medicalized. When women would start to bleed, they'll usually come into the hospital. So generally, miscarriages are happening in the hospital. Fetuses of over four months gestation are treated in the same manner an adult would be. And they're buried in the same way and the same prayers are done in the same performance of these prayers. They're either buried by the hospital in a procedure that I, I witnessed or they're claimed by the family and taken to the, the graveyard themselves for burial. Our, the research suggests that fathers are, are the ones who tend to do this procedure and the ceremony. In Qatar, the borderline between living and non-living human it, be, human being is four months. At four months, the soul is breathed into the fetus. It's at this point that the fetus is considered a human being. Despite knowing that a fetus becomes a human at four months, um, so they, the women are, they will say that they know that the, the soul is breathed in at four months. Generally, though, women will say that it's the fifth month when the, when the fetus becomes a baby to them. So it's when they kind of come to know it and it, it sort of becomes um, important to them in some ways, they would say. So Nora, for example, who's 38 years old, had, she has, has six children um, and two miscarriages, said from the fifth month, because he starts moving, you feel there's a spirit in your tummy. My feelings about the baby start when he starts moving. Whenever he moves or jumps, I put my hand on my tummy and mention God's name. I feel there is a soul. Fetuses of over 22 weeks are different um, entities. Parents are required to bury these fetuses after they issue a birth and a death certificate as well, and they also have to get a bearing request from uh, the mortuary. This sort of request will include the name of the, name of the baby, um, and as I said, it has to be named. So it ha it's named and it requires official documentation, so it becomes a kind of social being. Also, at this point, the family have to be involved in the burial. They have to take responsibility for it. They have to be present for the prayers and the ceremonies. So this just gives you an idea of the sort of the different ways and categories that are around and the lines that are drawn between um, these different beings and um, um, events such as a miscarriage. But by far the most common way that people spoke about these lost babies was as birds in heaven. Doctors, religious leaders, and participants all refer to them in this way. So a tesquite, a miscarriage, creates a being that becomes a bird in heaven. This bird in heaven resides in paradise and, whose creation, and its creation grants its mother a place in paradise. A fetus or a child will protect its mother and ask God to forgive her on judgment day. 
a number of participants named their baby Abdullah, for example. Um, so in, same with Maryam, for example, when they were asked to call it, they, they named the baby Abdullah, which means servant of God. Naula, a 33-year-old woman, the mother of four sons. Um, I'll do, sorry, I'll talk about Aisha first. So this is, this is a very typical kind of um, uh, quotation. So Aisha had six children after 11 pregnancies, and she said, the doctor in the operation room told me, you have four birds in heaven. I said, I hope I will see them in heaven. And she said, no, they will make you enter heaven. When I tell them I had a miscarriage before, they will say, you are lucky. There is someone that will protect you on the judgment day. They say, this bird will come alone in heaven and hold your hand and say to God, this was my mother. It should be this way because we're suffering. We're suffering a lot in miscarriage. Sure, it relieves the pain, alhamdulillah. And then this is an obstetrician who worked at the, the hospital um, or out of which I was working. He said, because in Qatar we are Muslims, we believe God gives and God takes, and we believe that this will be a bird in heaven. Any mother losing a baby, this will be a bird, and she will see him in the second life or the, the, um, in paradise. So she will not be that much depressed that she lost the baby. So this is very common language in the clinical setting. In fact, I just met in Qatar with, with a woman, a Norwegian woman, who had just had a miscarriage at... It's quite a horrific situation, but she lost a baby at 21 weeks. And she said that all the doctors were saying this to her, and she found it really, really um, hurtful and quite problematic because they kept sort of saying, you're fine, it's, it's a bird in heaven, um, it's God's will. And she found that quite... So it's, it's an interesting thing to think about sort of the hospital setting that are dealing with so many different um, religions and cultures. Okay, and then Naula um, said, when they informed me, I cried and I didn't accept it. The doctor said, this is from Allah. So though I was shocked at the beginning, but being a Muslim and our faith, that whatever happens to us is God's will, God rewards that my baby will be a bird in heaven and he will act on behalf of his parents. So in conclusion, um, women are expected to get pregnant soon after her marriage and there's a lot of pressure to do so. Women are held responsible for problems in reproduction. There is some uncertainty, however, about whether or not women are blamed for miscarriage. There is sympathy for women who lose babies, um, and there was a lot of discussion around that, that they feel sorry for them, and they are so women are something, they should be the focus of um, sympathy. But some may also suggest that she may be ultimately responsible. In Islam, suffering is built into the fabric of life, and it is to be expected. Islam teaches the endurance of suffering with hope and faith. The faithful are not counseled to resist it or to ask why. Instead, they accept it as God's will and live through it with faith that God never asks more of them than they can endure. Righteous individuals are revealed through patient acceptance of their own suffering. Women through motherhood suffer greatly, but this also affords them an exalted position. If a woman does suffer a mis miscarriage, there is an expectation not to dwell on the loss, and indeed such, such a fixation is seen as dangerous for herself but also for those around her. Women generally did not keep things to remember the baby. So Mariam was quite unusual in the fact that she'd kept that picture. Um, those that did, such as Mariam, felt they shouldn't and repeat, reported that they would delete the picture soon. But generally, there wasn't very much um, kept to remind one of, the, of a baby that was lost. Um, sonogram pictures, images aren't kept. Um, and the ex generally the focus is and the expectation is that the woman will get pregnant and probably get pregnant again soon and that she should work towards this so she should cleanse her body she should prepare her body um, and 
get ready to um, get pregnant again. There's a lot of sort of faith that this will this will likely end in a in a positive pregnancy and birth. So this image of women who are upset but do not dwell who, and who readily prepare their bodies for the next pregnancy, who might, for example, use baby clothes that they used um, for the lost pregnancy for, for future babies, is in stark contrast to the women that I meet in the UK who seem utterly shaken by the experience. Most have memorialized their baby and refer to them not only as babies but as children um, or lost dreams. They talk about honoring the baby, so someone will say that they had a they decided to go for conservative management, so to have a natural um, miscarriage because they felt that would honor the baby. Um, others also talk about they go to funeral services put on by the hospital or they create their own bespoke um, service in some way. They plant a tree, so this is a picture of a woman um, I met who buried, she'd kept, a lot of women keep the um, the fetus or the, the tissues and those, and they don't really know what to do with it, so they often will create their own little grave. So this is in um, at her parents' house. Um, so they create a grave, uh, they plant a tree, or they mark their bodies with a tattoo. I've been really surprised and interested how many of the my participants have got tattoos to remember um, to remember their their babies. And there's sort of interesting stories about why they chose these particular things. Um, and I think this is based on an uncertainty about the future. There seems to be a kind of collapsing of infertility and miscarriage in the UK, whereas this doesn't necessarily seem to be the case in Qatar. In Qatar, ultimately, miscarriage is God's will. The woman will see the baby again, and it resides as a bird in heaven. It will help its mother get into heaven. And there's a certain amount of certainty that she will get pregnant again, and she will have a child. And yet, in the UK, what I see is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of anxiety about this uncertainty. So just to leave you with one more quotation, this is Moza. He said, I'm still sad, but Alhamdulillah, I should thank him because it was for my benefit. I will rely on Allah and what he plans for me, inshallah, will be good. That's all.